is a battle going on today for the heart and soul of America, and the right side must win. It's time for America Can We Talk with Debbie George Addis. On America Can We Talk, we talk truth about America and why it matters to you. America Can We Talk starts now. And good evening and welcome to America Can We Talk. This is Debbie George Addis. My first five segment, where I always start the show off tonight, start the show off with, I want to talk tonight about the battle over the issue of race that's going on in the presidential campaign. Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump are exchanging barbs about who's racist and who you know, the other guy is racist. And I want to start with just something, a very short clip. This is Hillary Clinton, who uh, gave a tribute at the time that Senator Robert Byrd passed on. Let's play a brief segment from it. Today, our country has lost a true American original, my friend and mentor, Robert C. Byrd. Senator Byrd was a man of surpassing eloquence and nobility. I must tell you, folks, in case you didn't know, Senator Robert Byrd was a Democrat senator from West Virginia in the United States Senate, referred by the uh, Democrats for decades as the conscience of the Senate. That was their term for him. And he was a longstanding, not just member, but leader in the KKK, a leader in the Ku Klux Klan. This is Hillary's connection with racism and with the Ku Klux Klan. Here's a brief clip of what she is saying today. Uh, in fact, it's, um, it's a clip where she is a campaign ad. She's trying to tie Donald Trump to the KKK. They are often the kinds of kids that are called super predators. No con. We can, uh, let's finish that one. Yeah, I want to. This is Hillary Clinton on this. Uh, well, she her battle about racism. Go ahead. They are often the kinds of kids that are called super predators. No conscience, no empathy. We can talk about why they ended up that way, but first we have to bring them to heal. You called out okay. President Clinton for defending Secretary Clinton's use of the term super predator back in the 90s when she supported the crime bill. Why, why did you call him out? Because it was a racist term and everybody knew it was a racist term. <laughs> you got to love that. So this is Hillary Clinton, who's party, the Democrat Party, as we talked about many times in the show, has a history since the time of the Civil War. The Democrat Party has taken positions in every single issue facing America that crushed black Americans' rights. They stood against the rights for black Americans to receive votes. They fought against the civil rights movement. The Democrats were the founders of and the leaders of the KKK in the South, the Jim Crow laws, the lynching uh, mobs, all of that led by the Democrats. And Hillary's trying to take the moral high ground against Donald Trump. And this is a time, folks, when what she is doing is called projection, is taking what you really are and accusing your enemy of it. And Donald Trump is starting to talk back just a little tiny bit. And um, I'm going to share just a little bit of the important issue that came out this week. And I want to tell you a couple talking points about it. Hillary Clinton is trying to, she's very rattled because Donald Trump is reaching out to black voters. He's actually talking to black voters, making the point that their lives have not been helped by Democrat policies, that after 40, 50 years of great society, black Americans are, have same um, numbers in poverty. They have massive increase in the number of single parent homes. Nothing the Democrats have done, apparently, allegedly to help the black community has helped. Donald Trump is pointing this out, making Hillary nuts. So her reaction to this, instead of defending the policies that her party stands for and that she would continue, her reaction is to call Donald Trump a racist. And there's a specific term I want to mention because you're going to, it just blew up on social media this week. It's been all over Twitter and Facebook and on the internet. This idea, this term called the alt right or what it stands for is the alternative right. What Hillary Clinton is trying to say is that 
Donald Trump's vision and version of nationalism, his reinvigorating this love of America, his whole message about we have to, you know, American jobs first, don't bring people here that take away jobs Americans should have, about securing the border, of reinvigorating the American identity. Hillary's trying to label that as racist. She has nowhere else to go with it because the policies that Donald Trump is attacking are what Hillary believes in, what her party believes in. And since she has no answers to defend the policies, she does what Democrats always do. They turn and name call. In this case, she's calling Donald Trump wanting to reinvigorate America's identity. She's calling that racist. Now, as a very quick aside, there is a a small movement called the alt-right, and you'll see it mentioned online. There's some um, just complete fool who has nothing to do with the Republican Party who is advocating it. His name is uh, Richard Spencer. He writes about this alt-right thing. And he is, he sounds racist. I agree. But I want to, this is the bottom line you've got to take from this. American nationalism, what Donald Trump is inspiring people to love, is about American ideas. It doesn't have race. It doesn't have ethnicity. It doesn't have national origin. It's not about color. It's about the American idea. It's about what this show is dedicated to, to preserving and defending the unique identity of America. He's trying to reinvigorate the idea of America that's strong, that has free markets, that has abundant opportunity because of free markets, has a strong national defense, so we stop getting attacked. It's it's a reinvigoration of the idea of America that's not related to race at all. And what he is talking about, what he's attacking this this destruction of the American idea is what Hillary stands for. She has no answers, as, as all liberals always do. When they have no answers, they can't defend their policies. They turn around, talk about, they accuse other people what they've been doing. In this case, she's accusing the conservatives of racism. When, in fact, as her party has a 100-plus-year legacy of racism, their policies have failed black Americans. Don Trump is talking truth to them and making her crazy. After this break, we're going to talk about George Soros and some of the astounding things that came from his emails. Don't go away. More great stuff to learn. Welcome back to America Can We Talk. This is Debbie Georgiatis. Just before the break, I was talking about this determination of the American left to just shut down any energy on the conservative side. Backing up a tiny bit, I want to go back to the Tea Party briefly. You know, the, the Tea Party movement was a... Um, the most spontaneous love of America burst of grassroots energy, just truly, to use the uh, term... Uh, organic. It was just the people, this nationalistic pride and love of America. It wasn't about race or national origin. It was just about the idea, this kind of, it was like a, a spontaneous uprising of the spirit of America. And the policies that the Tea Party was was getting after were things that were un-American, such as the uh, race toward Obamacare, to cram Obamacare down the people's throats while the Democrats had the majority. It was about, you know, taxpayer dollars bailing out the auto industry, which wasn't really the auto industry. It was United Auto Workers taxpayer dollars bailing them out. It was policy after policy. People were saying, stop, and Republicans, stop him. Stop him from doing this. The Tea Party was organic, and because the issues they raised really resonated with heart and soul Americans, and Democrats had no answers 
what they did, as they are doing now to Donald Trump, they said, oh, well, Tea Party's racist. Well, I got to tell you, folks, uh, when Tea Party got started, I did a little bit, I tried to help, I was very politically involved, I tried to help get speakers for various events. People would contact me and say, hey, who can get to speak? Well, I can tell you, the four most popular speakers in this heart and soul southern Texas uh, where we were at that time, 2009, the four most popular speakers at Tea Party rallies were black. This fact did not stop the Democrats from whining and saying, oh, yes, it's a racist movement. Uh, those four speakers are still in various ways active in, in politics. Uh, Lieutenant Colonel Alan West, m- most popular probably, Commissioner Michael Williams, um, and then there was Pastor Stephen Broden. And then one who was popular to start and kind of waned off was Katrina Pearson. But at the beginning, she was an active Tea Party speaker. But the point is, the the most invigorating speakers were black, but that wasn't, the facts did not get in the way of the Democrats' efforts to paint the Tea Party as racist, because what they're really trying to do is to tell you, the American citizen, you shouldn't listen to those people. We, we've cast a label on them, and then you'll be, you'll be swept in with that label if you listen to them. It's the same thing they're trying to do to do today to Donald Trump, who is who is inspiring a wholesome, healthy, nationalistic attitude about love of America, protecting America's citizens and jobs, and they're trying to paint that as racist. Don't let this alt-right thing that Hillary is going to say, I'm telling you, 20 times a week until the election happens, don't even listen. It's it's a bunch of liberal hogwash. Okay, but I want to turn and talk about the George Soros um, emails. You know, it was amazing, the... Um, this kind of year of email tapping in, of hacking into emails, and the uh, stuff that is learned is breathtaking, but you also learn how many in the media simply are not going to let you know about it unless you dig in to find out. So I'm going to share a few goodies from George Soros. George Soros, actually, I learned one thing I had not known before, and I'm going to quickly tell you about him. You know, we mentioned him many times on the show before, but, you know, he's a, he's a, of Hungarian descent. He's, he's Jewish. He helped the Nazis as a child, helped the Nazis round up and hoard onto trains to be taken off to death camps, fellow Jews. Okay, so you know, it didn't start out strong morally. He actually, in an interview in 2004, talked about the idea that he sees himself in messianic terms. No joke. He talked about, he believed he was anointed by God. This is in 2004 he said this. He's long been an adult. He says, I fancied myself as some kind of God. If truth be known, I carried around some rather potent messianic fantasies with me from childhood, which I felt I had to control because otherwise they could get me in trouble. But he said it was sort of a disease when you consider yourself as some kind of God, the creator of everything. But I feel comfortable about it now since I began to live it out. Okay, this is George Soros, you know, uh, assisting the Nazis killing Jews a mega billionaire among the, uh, he may be the richest guy on earth, but let me just tell you what he does with his money. And this came out because George Soros founded the open. He came out because of WikiLeaks with people hacking into emails, but George Soros has uh, his personal emails were hacked as well as the emails of his uh, main foundation called the open society foundation. We've talked about this group before open society foundation is dedicated to the thinking of George Soros. What he means by open society is that he dislikes a national identity. He hates religion. This, What he took from the Nazi Holocaust was if everybody would just stop believing anything about God, get this silly, crazy idea of God's existence out of society, somehow the world would be better. That's what he thinks. And he thinks morality born of religion 
is also an ill in society. He thinks borders are bad. So what we learned and what these uh, these emails that were exposed, I'm just going to run through. He is. Um, he's been, well, the overall term, in fact, I'll put this on the uh, America Coming Talk Facebook page. It's an article by Caroline Glick called Soros Campaign of Global Chaos. But he has been funding, and I'll tell you a few things in America. Um, he funds uh, $33 million to bankroll the Ferguson protests. Now, the Tea Party was actually organic. The Occupy Wall Street, also funded by George Soros, and the Ferguson protests were funded by George Soros. These are paid protesters. These are people who would not be there waving banners. In fact, the, the emails reveal that the intent was to perpetuate, to, to extend, to have them last longer. The protests last longer. Funded the Ferguson protests. He also is bankrolling the lawsuits on voter ID. He doesn't like national identity, so he doesn't like the idea that it should matter if you're an American citizen as to whether you can vote. So he's funding the lawsuits challenging the legality or the uh, permissive, whether the voter ID laws are, are, are uh, permissible. He doesn't like the idea in America that we actually think it matters if you're a citizen that you can vote. So he's funding this with his, uh, you know, truly billions and billions of dollars. There's also, uh, because of these emails that got leaked, so it's no longer speculation or rumors, he's very much behind the European refugee crisis. In fact, he spoke of the refugee crisis as something that should be accepted as the new normal. In fact, it was the new opportunities for Soros organizations to influence immigration policies on a global scale. He's pushing his view of immigration, which again, since he doesn't like the idea of an American identity, the idea that that formed America, that just inspires Americans and American patriotism and has for over 200 years, this makes him crazy. In fact, one little thing about him, I'm digressed slightly because this wasn't from the emails, but from an original posting on his Open Society Foundation was the idea. He doesn't even like family units. He thinks each individual should be like a little amoeba. And just floating around, there's no reason that family units have to be intact. No reason it has to be father, mother, and children. Society can just take care of children. No reason that personal relationships and connections and commitments in any way help society. I mean, the guy's a sicko, just a sicko. But I digress. I want to go on and tell you some other things. He's extremely, he talked about their ambitions is we want to be supporting actors in the field of refugee resettlement to proactively seek to change policies, rules, and regulations that govern migration. He also uh, supports this. Um, <laughs> I mean, there's just too many things. It's hard to decide which one to tell you. Uh, he wants people to think of just kind of people in flux and crisis as a normal, healthy thing. He also founded research and funded, I'm sorry, funded research, funded research, opposition research on people who question or criticize radical Islam in any way. Experts that he targeted, that his money targeted, included friends of this this show, included Frank Gaffney, who's the founder of Center for Security Policy. He paid for opposition research to dig into the backgrounds of anyone in America who actually raises a question, raises an alarm bell about radical Islam. 
He wants to just shut people up. He just wants them to stop talking religion. He's very supportive of Islamization of, of other countries. And here are the people he targeted, including uh, Center for Security Policy President Frank Gaffney, frequent guest on this show, uh, Pamela Geller, Jihad Watch Director Robert Spencer, author David Horowitz, Daniel Pipes, uh, Liz Cheney, former Vice President Dick Cheney's daughter. He targets people who dare to speak about Islam. And he also has another project rolling where he is trying to, uh, with respect to these same people, exploring the interactions of groups of conservative think tank, think tanks, pundits, and politicians, anyone participating in the effort to inform Americans about the danger of radical Islam. He's funding, he's funding a sor- the, the uh, idea that he's going to do background research, try to destroy them in some way. And here's the last one. It's a killer. I know my segment's almost up, Mr. Over there in the booth, but I, I have 20 seconds here. Uh, he actually is part of the war on coal. He funded both Obama and Hillary's efforts to attack the coal industry. And then when his massive regulations in Washington reduced the coal company's stock price, just recently, he swooped in and bought a bunch of their stock. And you know what he's going to think. Eventually, there's going to be, we're going to pull back from this coal regulation. And lo and behold, he's going to be the owner of these, all this money he gets from his stock shares. This is the guy Hillary Clinton also refers to, along with Senator Byrd, as her friend and mentor, George Soros, evil guy. Come back, and we are going to have a great time talking with Lieutenant Governor Dan Patrick. We have a lot to talk about with him. Talk to you in a sec. Bye. And welcome back to America Can We Talk. This is Debbie Georgiatis. We have in this segment a guest. I just love talking with him. He's a I'm big supporter and longtime friend, Lieutenant Texas Lieutenant Governor Dan Patrick. Hello, sir. Good evening, Debbie. You know what I was thinking? I remember when you launched this show, and I know how hard it is being in radio and television for most of my life to uh, launch a show, and I'm very proud of your success. You've done extremely well, and so congratulations. Good to be with you. Well, thank you. I appreciate that very much. I'm going to return a compliment to you. So I was not at this meeting recently, but I talked to someone who was at a meeting where they heard our Texas Attorney General Ken Ken Paxson speaking, and he referred to you, Lieutenant Governor Dan Patrick, as the best Lieutenant Governor Texas ever had. So I just want to say, yay. (laughs) Well, um, that was very kind of... Can and uh, you know we're you know if you think about it, uh, number one, Debbie, I'm only the fourth lieutenant governor in history who's a Republican. You know we forget how short of a period of time over the history of our state that Republicans have actually controlled the state and the Senate and the House, and that wasn't until 2003 when we had the statewide and then the Senate and the House. You remember when George Bush was governor, we had a Democrat Senate and House. So the first lieutenant governor was Rick Perry. Um, he beat Jim. Uh, not Jim Hightower. Was it Jim Hightower? I forget. But he won in in uh, he won that race in 1999. No, John Sharp in 1999. And of course, he was only there for one session. Uh, he won the election in 98. So his first session was 99, and then he became governor when Bush became president. And then there was an interim, not voted on by the people, but to fill the term out, um, uh, uh, Bill Radcliffe, and then uh, David Dewhurst and myself. So there's only been four of us uh, uh, since the uh, beginning. 
That is very interesting. This is actually, you know, I, we, my husband, I only moved to Texas in the year 2000, and it's always seemed very Republican to us, but, yeah. you know, we haven't lived yeah. here that long. <laughs> so that's actually a good segue into something I told you. I, I emailed earlier. I wanted to ask your thought about this. Yeah. So there's a Real Clear Politics website that I actually often go to to get polling information and the latest polling in some state or something. Yeah. But they actually have an electoral college map, which our listeners know, at the end of the day, the electoral college picks the president after yeah. the American people have voted. And they, so they're, they have a big map of all the states and they put states into various categories, you know, like leans Trump, likely Trump, solid Trump, leans Hillary, likely Hillary, all that. So I was astonished to see, and I checked again today, that the Real Clear Politics electoral college map puts Texas in the category of leans Trump as though they're suggesting maybe Texas is in play in this election cycle. So what do you think about that? Uh, I don't think that's correct. And, you know, going back to my first comment about how long we have been around as Republicans uh, since 2003 uh, in all the statewide offices, but that doesn't mean, Debbie, and this is what's interesting, as you said, when you got here in 2000, we were a conservative state. It's just that once upon a time in the 70s, 80s, and into the 90s, Democrats in the state, in terms of office holders, were conservatives reflecting the base of voters. And so what's happened is, if you take East Texas, Central Texas, West Texas, those those areas 15 years ago voted all Democrat, or mostly Democrat. And today it's solid crimson red. So it's the same people. The Democrat Party just moved so far to the radical left that they left them. And then if you look at counties like Tarrant, Denton, and Collin, heavy, heavy, you know, 8 to 1, 9 to 1 Republicans. Same thing with Montgomery County near Houston. And then same thing with Williamson County starting to get that direction above Austin as a lot of Republicans move to the suburban counties. So I don't see how it can be leaning Trump for this reason. The only bastions of support that Democrats have in the state really are the Valley. Uh, but there aren't that many voters in the Valley. Uh, there, if you look at Dallas County, it's still, it's not 50-50, obviously. The Democrats have control of the bench in different positions for the most part. But it's, it's maybe a 55-45, and the same thing in Harris County, maybe 53-47, and Bexar County, maybe about 54-46. But it's close enough. And, 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 and actually, Abbott and I carried Harris County by five points, which is the most any Republicans carried it. And so the, what I'm saying is the Democrats and their three areas where they get the most votes, they're no more than a 50, you know, 52, 48, 51, 49 advantage, where we are a 70 percent advantage in all the rural vote, which is about a third of the total vote when you add up all the East, Central, West Texas. And then we beat them easily in Karen, Collin, Denton, Montgomery and other counties. Uh, you know, down in uh, Hayes and Colmel County, you know, north of San Antonio. So I don't see any of that changing. Now, for me, and I've been, you know, I was chair of, of the Ted Cruz campaign for Texas, and I wish he were our nominee, but he's not. So I'm all on board with Trump, and I've been on board since he became the nominee. We have to support our, our, our nominee. And I've been working with his policy staff on education and a little bit on immigration, traveling with him a little bit when he's in Texas, as I did this week and, and last month. Uh, my goal is for Trump to win Texas by 8, 9, or 10 points. Romney and McCain won by 12, 13, or 14 points. And so I don't know where they're getting lean Texas. He's up by 5 to 7 points. But I think Trump will outperform his polls everywhere. It's an amazing. He asked me on Tuesday night in Austin, Trump asked me, he said, uh, how do you think I'm doing? And I said, well, you know, the truth, Donald, is this. Um, she spent three to $400 million on television, particularly in the battleground states, and you haven't spent anything. 
Uh, the fact you should be 20 points down. You know, television makes a lot of difference when you have all those attack ads and you're not responding. I said the fact that you're down by five or six points nationally and in some of those battleground states less than five um, is remarkable. And I see you as kind of like that race car in a, in, a, in a NASCAR race or an Indy race where you're drafting. You're right behind the leader, and at the end, you've you, you got enough gas in the tank to pass the leader and get to the finish line. Now, for politics, gas in the tank is money. So he did raise $50 million in June, about $80 million in July. He'll raise more than $80 million in August. And they're going to start spending their money, you know, probably, you know, Labor Day after. And he should have enough money to give it a good run. It's going to depend on the debates. Obviously, that first debate is key. There are three in total. But I uh, look, it's going to be it's still hard to win for any Republican because you have to win Florida and Georgia and North Carolina and either Pennsylvania or Virginia or Michigan or Wisconsin. And you have to keep Arizona, and New Mexico and Colorado in the fold and Utah. So it's a challenge for any Republican. However, um, those who think it's over, I think, are wrong. Uh, I think he actually has a has a uh, at least a fifty fifty chance to win. I mean, I think it's about even, and it's going to depend on the next two months. I'm, I'm talking about for the country, not Texas. He's going to win Texas. I just want to get the total up. But nationally, I think he's got a I think he's got a fifty fifty chance to win. Yeah, I'm so glad you said said that. We're speaking this evening. I'm happy to report Lieutenant Governor Dan Patrick, a friend of the show and friend of mine. And um, I'm just really I saw that I mentioned before a minute ago about this map on the Electoral College on the real cure politics. And it just it seemed to me kind of symbolic of how this whole race is being handled in the media. And you you were referring to that a moment ago, the polls, you have many, many pundits and websites and, and talk show people just kind of conceding it's over. Hillary is yeah. so far up. And I just, I find it infuriating because there are plenty of polls that, that make it much closer, make it within two or three points. And then it does come down a lot to the swing states. And so those states, there's a real need to focus on. So I guess, it, I don't know whether you know this or not, but why aren't they advertising? I wish he would just advertise blitz in the uh, swing states. He just hadn't had the money. Uh, and it's, you know, when I ran for lieutenant governor in Texas, and Greg Abbott and I run separately, um, so he had his campaign, I had mine. I spent $16.5 million just in Texas. Uh, it's a million dollars a week to be on in Texas, for example. If you, if you want to be on the morning, midday, early evening, and 10 o'clock news in all the markets, um, it's about a million dollars a week in Texas. Just, you know, but now he won't be advertised. You won't see any ads in Texas because he's going to win Texas. And, uh, but, my point is that when you get to states like Florida and Ohio, they're not as Texas is one of the most expensive markets because of the cost to advertise on television in Dallas and Houston, particularly. That's about seventy percent of the million dollars a week, but it is expensive. And so, what you do in a campaign, um, what you do is you want to be sure. That's why I talked about the gas in the tank to get across the finish line. You want to be sure you have all the money you need for the last week, the week before the election. And it's whatever that number is, and I don't know what that number is for them, how they're, how they're budgeting that, but it's a big number. Whatever you, you put that, in the, you put that in the vault and you don't touch it because you don't want to run out of money the last week. And then as you, the next group of money that you raise, then that's for two weeks before the election. Okay. And then three weeks and four weeks. So what you want to be sure, and you know, we, we're early voting, you know, we start the middle of October roughly. Only about a dozen states have early voting. So for most states, you have mail-in ballots, but most states, the election is, isn't until November 8th or 9th, whatever that official date is. So what he needs is to have, let's just say it's, I don't know what the number is, but let's, let's say they, need, they be, believe they need $30 million a week to be on all the TV stations, you know, on all those key states the last week. Well, if you want to be on TV four weeks, you need $120 million, and if you want to be on six weeks, uh, you need $180 million. So you store that away. 
Uh, and once you get that, because if you start mon- spending money now and, and you don't have enough, then you're kind of keeping your fingers crossed it comes in. And so that's kind of the way it's approached. And that's why he's not on now. And, and, this, and actually, it's amazing because she is spending a lot of money. And, and she'll have a lot of money, but it takes away her advantage because there's only so many commercials you can buy. <laughs> so if he can match her dollar for dollar the last six weeks, then and, he, and he's close to even or, you know, four or five points down. And I think it will be closer. I think he'll do well in the debate. It's possible he doesn't. But if he does well in the debate on September 26th, it's a new race. We are speaking tonight with Lieutenant Governor Dan Patrick. I only had 17 more questions for you. but um, I can say if you want one more sentence. <laughs> I don't know if you have another guest, but I can say if you want. Can you? Okay. Your, your decision. Say through the break. Yeah, just a couple more questions. And I'll let I you go. You. Lieutenant Governor Dan Patrick, thank you, sir. We'll talk to you after the break. And welcome back to America Can We Talk. This is Debbie Georgiatis. We're so uh, happy to have on the line tonight as our guest, Lieutenant Governor Dan Patrick, and he stayed over for a few more minutes in this segment because what I wanted to ask you about was, uh, first of all, welcome back. <laughs> yes, ma'am. Um, yes, ma'am. There is a, uh, a lot of attention in the news about the immigration policy that yeah. is in Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump going back and forth on their, on their points. But there were recently a lot of stories about whether about Donald Trump's immigration policy. I kind of saw it more or less as defining what he was or spelling out or giving more detail, fleshing out his policy. But there was, it was certainly some attack as though the claim was he was vastly changing it. So my question is, is he changing or just expanding? And also, is it going to hurt him in Texas? Well, I, I think if, if he went 180 degrees in the other direction, um, yes, that would be a concern of many people who, who want to uh, secure the border. Um, but I don't think he's done that. Um, I do think there were some missteps. Uh, now, sometimes whether you misspeak um, or you you know, or you say something that afterwards you realize, well, that's not what I meant to say. Maybe that is misspeaking. Um, uh, but I think he's come back to saying there will be no citizenship for people who have come here illegally. And uh, I think that's the main issue. The second thing that, um, and I'm working with their education policy, as I mentioned, and making suggestions on uh, on uh, border issues as well. Um, uh, I, I'm, not a, I'm not in the inner circle of the team, but we are working and trying to help them the best we can and, and trying to get him to be disciplined in message and on point. Um, and here's, here's what I told voters is, number one, um, he will secure the border. She will not. He's not for open borders. She is. Uh, she wants to bring, you know, anywhere from 500,000 to a million more people coming in from the uh, Middle East. Uh, he won't support that. In fact, he wants to be sure he vets everyone very clearly before anyone gets in. Um, so I think there's a vast difference. Um, but, uh, you know, there's no question that he, I think it was the interview with Hannity that some people say, well, wait a minute, where's his position now? And so uh, he's still the person who will secure the border, and she's not. And uh, and I believe, I believe that um, he'll make it very clear, as he's tried to kind of do since then, that, um, you know, we're not going to allow citizenship. We're not going to allow uh, people to come here legally to vote. I think what he was saying, and, you know, quite frankly, in my campaign, Debbie, and I got nearly 50% of the Hispanic vote and Abbott and I, as, as Abbott did, we won two to one in Texas. Uh, not two to one. We won sixty forty in Texas. But um, 
Uh, you know what we said? You have to have a secure border. We said we'd spend more money on border security than ever before. We did. We increased it from about 250 to $800 million in the Senate budget. The House went along with that. And, uh, and the second thing, we've always said you have to determine what you're going to do with the people who are here. But before you can even get to that issue, you have to secure the border or people keep coming. Um, but I also don't agree that anyone who's come here illegally should ever have an opportunity to vote. Amen on that last point. Thank you so much for hanging on past that break. I just, such a big issue. And again, Lieutenant Governor Dan Patrick, thanks for all you do for Texas and thanks for calling in tonight. Okay, I'm going to jump off, folks. This is in this segment, I often call my cruise through the news and I have, um, you know, about, um, 15 stories, not that much time, but I just want to talk to you briefly about uh, some of the stories I think are really, really important and they get lost because we don't have time to talk about them. There's been a lot of controversy about the voter ID laws. And in fact, uh, I think it's 32 states have voter ID laws and they and they basically are saying in some way or other, you have to actually have an ID, a picture ID to vote to, sh- to show that you are who you are. And we have um, various states try to pass laws that make sure that people, especially low-income Income people who may not have, they may not have a driver's license, they may not even have the state ID, but find a way to get them a picture ID. And even as you, as all of us know, you almost can't function in the United States of America without a picture ID. You can't get on a plane, you can't, often can't use a credit card, you can't cash a check. You can't do daily life living without a picture ID. But the left tries to paint voter ID as a racist attack on um, on the poor and minorities that somehow if, if these laws that say that based on the desire to have integrity in the voting process, the desire to have confidence in the people, that we have a system that actually reflects the, the will, the voting of the of actual citizens. So this voting integrity is huge, but the left always paints it as this is picking on minorities. But there's a recent poll that is very similar to many other polls. I just want to tell you the results. Again, 80% of Americans, 80, 8, 0, White and non-white across party lines support requiring a photo ID, 80%. Okay, among non-whites, so anyone, yeah, just all non-whites, 77% support a requirement of a voter ID. Uh, 93% of Republicans, 83% of independents, and only 63% of Democrats. And I say all this to say... When you hear people saying that voter ID requirements are racist, understand this is a political attack by people who want to cheat in the voting process. This is a, an attack by people who are perfectly fine to have non-citizens vote. That's why they don't want to be bothered with a picture ID that you could not have created without proving who you are and then therefore being able to check whether you actually have the right to vote. So, the people are behind picture IDs. Don't forget it. I also tell you, I mean, these quick run through stories. This is just astonishing. But, you know, we've had this ongoing discussion in America about the um, transgender bathroom restrictions. And essentially, you know, the, the Obama administration, without any vote by the United States Congress, the Congress, the House and the Senate never passed this. But the Obama administration decided to interpret Title IX, which essentially says you can't discriminate in college funding for sports based on gender. So that was a whole idea that, you know, if you, girls' sports should get funded too, that colleges or to get federal aid cannot discriminate based on uh, being male or female. So it was based on boys versus girls, men versus women. 
But the Obama administration decided, I think it was like June of 2014, decided that what that really meant or that included in that statute should be the idea that there should be a um, prohibition on discriminating based on gender identity or uh, gender expression. So they issued a kind of advisory letter saying that public schools around the country should have, should must, must permit a student to use the restroom, shower facility, changing facility, locker room of the gender that they decide they are that day, of their gender identity, the gender expression, not, not what their anatomy says they are which is their anatomy at birth, but their gender identity. So states and a lot of schools, in fact, we just hung up with Lieutenant Governor Dan Patrick, and he's been a strong advocate in Texas schools saying, no, this is not going to stand. We're not going to let ninth grade girls go into the shower in the locker room and worry that maybe a boy will be in the shower next to them. This is not hard to figure out, folks, but this transgender stuff continues to be an issue. And uh, President Obama, and this is one of his many literally in the dozens, uh, executive orders. He didn't actually didn't make it an order, to be precise. It's just advisory, but it's advising the states, if you don't comply with this, you may lose federal funding. And so a lot of schools get all nervous and anxious and they need that money. A great answer would be someday that they don't need that money. But right, so the, the development I wanted to mention tonight in this subject, there was a federal judge said that the University of North Carolina cannot enforce the part of that state's law and the state of North Carolina, backing up, state of North Carolina passed a bill essentially saying, we're not doing this transgender bathroom thing. You know what? You got to use the restroom that matches your anatomy. That's what you have to do in the great state of North Carolina. And so the schools were looking for, they, they said, great, you know, we can, we can live with this. But then a, a federal judge just struck it down, just said the, that North Carolina or that UNC, this University of North Carolina, cannot enforce the part of the state's so-called bathroom bill that restricts which restrooms transgender people can use because it's a pending case. It's going to go through the federal court system. But the idea, the court took the side of the, and we all get what the issue is. Young men getting to say, yeah, today I'm thinking I'm a girl. I'm going to go use a girl's room. Now, this is not to denigrate the idea that there aren't seriously challenged people who have gender identity problems. There always have been. This is not a unique thing in our time. It's, it's uniquely talked about more. It's not unique. But what's unique is we are in our society more sympathetic to the emotions of a child who's deciding he or she is the opposite gender than they really are, we're more sympathetic to their feelings than we are to the privacy and dignity of a young woman or a young man in a men's locker room. We're more sensitive to that, uh, to that gender expression or gender confusion than we are to just basic common courtesy and dignity of the individual. So I just want to, um, uh, I think that's a uh, amazing commentary in our times. We even have to be discussing this. The other, in our, this is our cruise through the news segment. I only have a few more stories I want to share, but you know, we're going to, in the next hour, we have uh, just going to have a great conversation uh, about the uh, San Francisco quarterback who uh, did something controversial. You probably followed that. We're going to talk, we're going to dive in on Trump's immigration plan, policies, changes. And so, but to finish up this cruise through the news, I want to mention something that it was kind of touched on talking with Lieutenant Governor Dan Patrick, and that is this. It's fine. In this election cycle, you know, people, there were 17 Republicans in the primary. A lot, Obviously, everyone who supported any other 16 didn't get their first choice. 
and that's life. There's still a small portion of Republicans who are actually, who have, they are never Trumpers, who've actually decided they have put together a campaign, raised money to run an ad to air in swing states calling on Donald Trump to drop out. Now, folks, I almost hated giving airtime to this story because I think it's horrible. But I just got to tell you, you know, he wasn't my first choice. I really supported Ted Cruz, and I still would hope someday he has a place in the in the, in the presidency of our of our country. I really hope that happens someday. But you know, this is where we are, and so these people who are trying to urge Donald Trump to drop out, they're not just attacking Donald Trump; they're attacking the vast majority of Republican primary voters who chose him. And in my view, they chose him, number one, because he's an outsider, because they are conservative and they're upset and they're frustrated with the GOP in Washington. And it's the GOP in Washington types who got rebuked by this choice, who are now in part behind this urging Donald Trump to drop out. Folks, you know, at the end of the day, and November 9th, we're going to have President-elect Clinton or President-elect Trump. And if it's Clinton, there's a whole lot of these folks that are going to be held accountable. Come back after our break. And we're going to talk about San Francisco. We're going to talk about sports. Guys listening, we're going to talk about San Francisco's quarterback. Talk to you in a minute. Number one source for premium talk radio. I am America. One voice, united we stand. I am America. One hope to heal our land. I will not give up on this fight. I will not fade into the night. I am America. Time for our second hour roundtable on America Can We Talk with Debbie Georgiatis. More talking truth about America. And welcome back to the second hour of America Can We Talk. This is our roundtable hour, and I usually try to fit it in before the break, but I have joining me tonight roundtable leading lady, Jenny McGeary, and I'm glad she's here. We... um. We talk politics a lot, whether on air or just on the phone. But anyway, great to have her here. And Thanks. I always start this hour with this. I want to have like a rapid fire roundtable discussion on one issue. And this is a sports one. You know, my husband and our sons are huge uh, sports aficionados and could recite all sorts of details and stories. And actually, sometimes the stories, my husband will tell me about different stories and say, you know, these are not just sports stories. They're kind of pictures, little pictures of America, little windows on uh, thought in America or, or um, just really touching stories and sports of various kinds. So, but this one isn't touching, but it's really, it's political too, which is, as many of you probably know, a San Francisco 49ers quarterback, Colin Kaepernick, 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 sorry, recently decided he refused to stand up when there was a pregame playing of the national anthem. 
And this is, you know, everyone knows very customary at every sporting event we ever go to. They sing the national anthem. They have a patriotic, you know, expression before the game starts. What he said in a statement afterwards is Colin Kaepernick, the San Francisco 49ers quarterback, said, I am not going to stand up to show pride in a flag for a country that oppresses black people and people of color. There are bodies in the street and people getting paid leave and getting away with murder. So he's making reference to the Ferguson, Missouri incident uh, in which a uh, white police officer shot a young black man. We've discussed the Ferguson incident dozens of times in the show. I might go into it again, but I thought it was just really um, and the NFL issued some statement of that as though essentially saying, you know, they said we encourage our players to, you know, we like to start the game with patriotism. We we encourage our players to stand. But, you know, it's, we also ex- uh, respect the freedom of expression. And so I guess if he's not going to stand up, they're not going to do anything about it. But I thought it was just a, it's a real window on the impact of the Black Lives Matter movement. So my roundtable rapid fire question, Jenny McGarry, she's the only one yes, here. So ma'am. she gets more than three minutes. <laughs> um, no, she gets she gets two and a half. Anyway. So what is your reaction to that? I mean, do, have we lost national unity? Or why, what do you think we should do about this? Or? Well, I, I think, first of all, that, that we have to look at, at what at what the problem is here. And, and what we see here is somebody who doesn't actually understand all of the facts that have occurred. And I think that this person is not expressing in a way that will be positive or productive for himself. I mean, when we look at his record, I mean, the last two years, he has not been a stellar player. Uh, Word is he's trying to get out of his contract. Well, this is not going to make him a sought after commodity to play backup on any other team. And right now, all over social media, all we're seeing is people that are playing the national anthem and burning his jersey. This is not good. This is not a positive way to get a message across. This is not something that that will make him look be looked at as someone who is a leader and an example. I mean, let's look at how the, just not putting your hand over your heart did to, to Gabby Douglas. So this is not going to be something that is going to play out well for him. It absolutely is not. And you know what else is really interesting about this? It's a weird thing to say, but I mean, I, I, I revere America so much, not race and not national origin, but the ideas of America, what the flag symbolizes. And it's so important. And I've seen lots of veterans, people who serve for this country and and put their lives at risk, really condemning this young quarterback. But I had a brief or kind of a glint of a thought I was going to share that I don't want you guys to think I'm not conservative, but I had this almost motherly thought about this kid that it's like he doesn't know any better. I mean, it's like he's, you know, he's listened to Black Lives Matter uh, movement saying, you know, you're it's just a terrible country and there are police officers just randomly mowing down innocent young black men as they're doing nothing wrong. I mean, the, the Black Lives Matter movement has gotten, oh, which was and is funded heavily by George Soros, the evil person we talked about earlier. Yes. The Black Lives Matter movement is not organic. It may have people part of it who really are concerned. It's funded by George Soros. But back to this Copernic thing. Kaepernick thing, he hears these stories, and if he really thinks that Ferguson happened the way Black Lives Matter said it happened, if you if it really were the case that young Michael Brown has hands up, was standing still, said hands up, don't shoot, and it was has hands up and, and saying don't shoot, and the officer shot him anyway, he'd have yes. a right. But this is he's being led by lies of the American left. This this young man's failing 
in not knowing the truth is the fault of the Black Lives Matter movement who've convinced him of a false picture of America. We got 30 seconds. Go it's ahead. propaganda. It's propaganda gone wild. And it's unfortunate that he was not able to get all the facts of everything that occurred, because as we've seen in, in, in so many numbers recently, I know that you and I have talked about them, the 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 weight of what people have said has hurt so much um, America's law and order have hurt our yes. police officers, have hurt the trust that we can have with everybody obeying law and order. It, it, it's uh, it's unfortunate. It is not a it, it's just not a positive thing. Oh, it's a tough thing. Okay, we guess we're, we're out of time in this segment. I only have six more things to say. Okay, actually, I have 30 seconds. I'm quick to say this. The, the thing about the Black Lives Matter movement that was supposedly trying to help black Americans, there is mountains of data talking about the fact that America has become more divided, more racially divided than ever before in the last seven years. I'll bring you some of the stats when we come back. Don't go away. And welcome back to America Can We Ever Talk. This is Debbie Georges in my second hour roundtable tonight. I have Jenny McGarry with me. I want to get into talking about um, the uh, kerfuffle this past week, the fuss over um, the, some wording that Donald Trump came out with, his immigration policy, and one of his staunch supporters, Ann Coulter, had a bit of a Twitter meltdown for a couple of days. But before I get to that, back to this quarterback story I, I know I said before the break, I kind of feel sorry for him, but it's not just him. It's it's really the insidious part of it is that there are millions of Americans like this young guy who they may not be employed in the way they want. They live in, a, in inner cities where there's poverty. They have crime in the area. They're They're not happy and they want things fixed. And they hear the Black Lives Matter mantra come along and say, essentially, and along with the liberal politicians in America, say, essentially, that the country's very racist. You know, lots of people don't care about you. Uh, you our, our system is rigged against you. We are not we there's no way out of your poverty. So here's just more government assistance. I mean, the whole message of the American left is so condescending. And what's so insidious is it plants a seed in the thought of an astoundingly talented young man, a guy who gets to play in the NFL, the dream of I'm going to tell you hundreds of thousands of boys in America. If not, I don't know. I mean, get he gets to, yeah, lots and lots of people want to play, and he so he gets that dream. And this young man is African American. I think maybe uh, he may have been um, his dad was black and his mother was white. I don't even know what the story was, but the bottom line was he ended up being adopted by white parents, raised by white parents, encouraged along. And here he is at the NFL level with his contract being that he signed in 2014 a contract for $110 million over six years. Okay. It's incredible. Incredible. It's just, yeah. And, and I have to say, though, as, as somebody who's a naturalized citizen, someone who came to this country looking to have a better life, my mother, my, fa- my father is, it was an American citizen. My mother came here, got her green card, went through the whole citizenship. I had to learn English. And for someone to behave that way towards our country of choice, of choice is just completely insulting to me. And, and, and I don't have very much patience for a lot of it because I'm telling you, 
I've lived in third world countries and the opportunities we, we have here are just immeasurable. They are. And, you know, the other thing is no one's claiming the police are perfect, but every if you do have instances and when the police are out of line, whether it's like Senator Tim Scott said in the floor of the Senate, I and he's a black Republican senator, I get pulled over more than I should, more than other people do. I, I believe that. I believe there are all sorts of problems. So you have to address the problems. You have to acknowledge them and address them. But to paint the whole country in that way and to and, and to be, uh, you know, and, and not deal with the reality as we have on the show, I had long uh, interview with Heather McDonald, where she has just broken down the FBI uh, crime statistics to make the point, essentially, that, you know, there is a, a massive problem in America with black crime. And so we got to solve the whole problem and you have to be honest about it. But this kid has been drawn into as well as millions of others into accepting the entire problem that is America's racist and so are the police. Uh, all I know is that try living in a third world country and the police there. I'm telling yeah. you, <laughs> we were a lot more afraid of of the police in, in these third world countries more than uh, I've ever been of getting pulled over here. And uh, we hear so much about how police behave towards different races, but Comparatively, there isn't even a close measure. Yep. And, you know, the thing is, actions like this, they make people so angry at him and they make people angry, more angry again at advocates who are just painting too broad a brush that we do. We aren't as effective in, in dealing with the problems that really do exist. Okay. I'm just, I think it's a great, we're going to do sports stories, especially because football season's coming up Absolutely. and man, in our house, <laughs> you know what? It's, it's kind of what we do on the weekends. Yep. Uh, but anyway, um, I want to turn and talk briefly about this immigration policy. We talked last hour with Lieutenant Governor, uh, Texas Lieutenant Governor Dan Patrick, who's just a, um, wonderful lieutenant governor and you know we touched briefly on this immigration thing and that is that you know a lot of the reason early on this primary that many voters got excited on the on the republican side about donald trump was because he was talking tough talking strong on immigration we're going to actually secure the border we're going to have and i still am all with the program of we must vet people coming to America who from Islamic countries, from Middle Eastern countries. And, and until we find a way to vet them, we need to stop bringing them here so we don't have any more San Bernardinos. I'm with them all the way on that. I think we have to find a vehicle to do that. But he had a, a, a step, a trip up this week. I don't know what you call it exactly, but a lot of media attention because what Donald Trump and in, in spelling out his immigration policy seemed to be backtracking. So I don't know if you had a well, reaction. Yeah. The thing is, to me, he's more or less defining it. He's going into specifics. He's defining the steps that it will take in order to achieve the goal that he's already put out there. What what people may be reading into it is that he's 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 sounding more compassionate. Darn. <laughs> you know? Yeah. It, it, but but the thing is, is that goal is still the same. We don't want the people that are coming in not to be vetted, not to be criminals, not to be people that are going to be living off of our economy and not contributing to it. Yeah, I tell you, the basic, I had the same feeling too. At first I was, because I did think that some, I did think several things that Donald Trump said during the campaign, didn't, they maybe didn't come out the way he meant, but they, they weren't eloquently said. But he got around. There's a good way to describe it. He did get around. And his basic things, I think he hasn't changed. He's talked about in his website, a nation without borders is not a nation. A nation without laws is not a nation. And a nation that doesn't serve its own citizens 
is not a nation. So he says any immigration plan must improve jobs, wages, and security. He is, the big change I will say is, I mean, the positive was he's going to do a wall or something similar, firmer immigration um, protection at the border. He's going to insist on ending sanctuary cities, huge difference from Hillary. He's going to work toward more enforcement of the existing laws, especially the hiring of illegal aliens. Um, and, you know, his five-point thing had this, the building offense and enforcing immigration law. He talks about no more cozy detention centers. I kind of like that. Yes. So, you know, but at, at the end of the day, what happens is an immigration policy, you can talk about the border and security, but you got to get around to talking the tough thing, which is what do you do with the 11 million illegals. plus people, the illegals, and it's fine to call them that illegal aliens who are here. What is it you do? And he's discovered what many politicians in Washington have, I think, that they get to the point of saying, well, okay, we've secured the border, we've, we've cracked down the laws, we've defined the laws, what do we do when they're here? My bottom line is, and then you can say yours, my bottom line is, we must, more than the top issue, more than anything else, we must be sure that anyone who entered illegally, even if we're going to give them some new legal status, we, and we're not going to we're not going to round them up and send them home. That was never going to happen. But we must give them if we're going to give them some legal status, it must be crystal clear that they do not have the right to vote. Amen. The voting is the whole thing, folks. If that we got the American public behind that, yeah. I'm telling you, Jenny. No, the, I agree. I agree. I'm I'm on the same page. <laughs> not only not voting, but that they don't enjoy. Uh, a lot of the benefits that you get as a citizen who's been paying into this entire system, you know, whether it's they have to pay for their own medical care, they need to pay for the education that they're getting provided. You know, they're not getting unemployment benefits unless they're paying into the system. Then why are they getting the benefits that we paid for? You know, that's a huge one. The cost of having illegal aliens come in on the voting thing. The reason one reason I'm big on this is. I think, and I don't think, I know that the Democrat Party's policies over the last decades of essentially, you know, surrendering border security, allowing millions to enter our country through their southern and northern borders, having a massive refugee policy of more and more refugees coming here, all of that is happening, not because the Democrats care more than you or care more than the Republicans. They are building a potential future Democrat voting base. Exactly. Period. And because of that, if the law could make clear, okay, maybe we have some new legal status where you work here and you you have legal right to work. And if you get paychecks, then maybe you start paying taxes. And if you're paying taxes, maybe you get some benefits. But the voting thing, this is fundamental to the idea of a citizen's right. It's a citizen's right. And the thing is, you want people to come here Back to this idea of America that Donald Trump is, is, is speaking and people is warming people's hearts. You have to want to become an American. When we came to the United States, there was not an option. I learned English. I, I also became more assimilated. I, I, I embraced the Constitution. I understood the Constitution in English. There, there's, there, there are things that you have to treasure and you have to love as being part of this country that can secure a vote and citizenship brings you to that. I, I'm telling you this, this is to me is the biggest way that Donald Trump could just shut this whole thing down is if he just said, uh, as long as they can never vote, if you want to vote, you got to go back home and follow the law to become a citizen. This new status is not going to give you the right 
to vote, even if you have the right to stay here, earn a paycheck, and, and pay taxes and get benefits, you can't vote. And because I, and I'm telling you what happens, the Democrats would drop the issue like a hot potato because all that has ever been in, the, in it for them is future voters. Okay, folks, we're, uh, we're almost out of time. And next segment, we have our friend Mark Davis calling in. You don't want to miss this. Welcome back to America Can We Talk. This is Debbie George Addis and leading lady Jenny McGarry. And in this hour, we have a guest joining us online. And he's actually a fellow radio host at 660 AM The Answer in North Texas, Mark Davis. Hello, sir. Thanks so much. Glad to have you on. I tell you, we've been, we've of course been talking about you on the break um, because Jen, you know Jenny McGarry. You know you know her too. She, uh, in fact, she joins a luncheon group we're often at talking about politics. So we're just um, we kind of talk politics all the time. But I've, she was uh, going through your book while we were. Um, on talking to other guests and doing the show earlier and because she didn't have a copy yet, I'm so happy I do. So Mark's new book is called Upside Down: How the Left Turned Right into Wrong. Truth into lies and good into bad. And I'll tell you one reaction I had to this because what it is basically, in fact, the cover, the jacket cover is a great description. He basically takes major issues or major policy areas facing America, and there's a chapter on each, and or they're mostly policy, 20, 27 chapters, but he just prints out the liberal lie in a really short, pithy sentence and refutes it. And, you know, so here, here's my idea, Mark. You need to get every candidate in America to buy this because they, this would be their prep before an interview, before a press conference. That's all they have to do. I, I just have, cannot commend you uh, highly enough, strongly enough with this great book. It is so down to earth and so good. Thank you. Great to be with you. And hi, Jenny. Nice to see you, too. And, <laughs> and it's funny, because I didn't envision this as, as being specifically aimed at the 2016 election, but with everybody freaking out about Trump in certain ways and wanting the best from him so that he can beat Hillary, I've had a bunch of people suggest that maybe he, and with your suggestion attached, everybody else, should just gather under the umbrella of shared values that we all have. But that involves more than just saying, hey, here's what we believe. We also have to point to the various doctrinal arguments that are sadly winning. Things like gender doesn't matter, conservatives hate black people and women, (laughs) you know, all of this nonsense, and have a civil but coherent point-by-point rebuttal. So that's what I was trying to do. You most certainly accomplished that. It's just, you know, um, first of all, I'm sure this is available on Amazon, right? Correct. And then, but in Barnes, it's funny. I was just up the road from uh, from where I live, up in Highland Village, and I walked into uh, Barnes and Noble, and and there was a stack of them on the new releases. And I walked up to a manager and I said, "Hey, uh, you want me to sign those for you?" First thing he did was ask me for ID. (laughs) 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 It's like it's a prank to walk in and sign other people's books. I I did those. They may still have a few of those. I don't know. But yes, Barnes and Noble or Amazon. Just do the Mark Davis upside down search and and it'll take you right to it 
you know what I, I love about it, I just want to hit some of the points that you hit and you know I've there as I went through the book you can just kind of leave through and read the bold uh, in every chapter you read the bold it's just a short little argument the left would make or a liberal talking point and then your response is so clever and specific and detailed and you know 19 points in rebuttal and the, the liberal will be helplessly uh, losing but you actually hit on one I thought was such an important thing uh, and it's going to be talked about in this election cycle and afterwards was this hitting this idea that birthright citizenship is in the Constitution. Thank you, because it's, oh. it's just not. I mean, I, I think I said in that one that this could be the shortest chapter in the book where all you really have to say is, no, it's not. But <laughs> it, it, it does help to make your points and to go back to a little bit of history. And in the 14th Amendment, the people at that time had no concept whatsoever of people seeking to claim citizenship by simply stepping across the border and engaging in the miracle of birth. Mere geography was never meant to be a building block for citizenship. And yet, you may have offered up the best example of the most resilient argument that the left has made, and they've had judge after judge after judge stand up for them. So these are not just arguments that you can make with the guy in the next cubicle or over coffee. These are arguments that need to be made in the courtrooms of the United States. They really do. And, you know, we talk about this on this show a lot how, and I say in all my speeches, too, everyone has far more political power than they think they do, power to impact the American political conversation by responding. You know, if you hear a statement, someone saying like, well, birthright citizenship is in the Constitution or um, America's gun culture is a problem, you have to be ready. You can't just say, no, it's not. But you have to, I mean, so be ready, at least on the points that you care about. And so this is this is also ammo for your everyday political activists to have points. I, I just love it. So Jen and I agreed in the break yeah. that we're going to go back and forth with the, the parts yes. we want to have you talk about. And, and, and I have to tell you, Mark, I really enjoyed reading the excerpts that I was able to during the last hour. And uh, one of the things I liked that you wrote about was um, – you said the point, we need comprehensive immigration reform. Yeah, and God you, help us. <laughs> and you were able to really clue in on the word comprehensive and tell us the spin that the, the, the left wants us to believe. Because there is a code language, and you almost need a lexicon of what they mean. And when they throw that comprehensive thing at us, it means that, that it, 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 I think the definition I gave is a type of reform offered by people who will bury you with the sheer <laughs> volume of their plan so that you never know what they're actually trying to do. Comprehensive reform is really no reform. If there's any problem that needs to be taken on a step-by-step basis, it's immigration. You can certainly expect that'll be a big deal moving forward. And, and, and step one is do something about the borders. And then we go into the very detailed and complex notion of what to do with the millions who are here already. Uh, people seeking to enshroud their intent in comprehensive reform, they want to get to the legalization and the citizenship part first and hope that we just gloss over the border security part. Absolutely right. You are absolutely, absolutely true. Right. You and also I thought was really cool that you did. And we're speaking, uh, if you're just tuning in, we're speaking to Mark Davis, who's a six, famous 660 AM host and actually nationally known radio host. And a, uh, he's has co- regular column in, I guess, the Fort Worth Star and the Dallas Morning News, right? Oh, it's, it's, Dal- I wrote, it's weird. I, I came back to my native Texas in 94, wrote for the Star-Telegram from 96 to 04, Dallas Morning News ever since, and townhall.com. Plus, I see you on uh, morning television, too. I'm, I'm sorry, the name is alluded. It's a Channel 8, but what is it you do in the morning? 
Well, it, it, it's every Thursday morning before the show that I do there on 660 at 7, 7 to 10. Uh, at about 635 on Thursday mornings, I'm there with Tim and Lauren on Fox 4. And then we also tape something, Flashpoint, where I am arguing something lovingly with either Domingo Garcia <laughs> yeah. or, or Katie Sharon. And I love my buddies. And it's, it's so great because, Debbie, you're, you're always a, a picture of this, of disagreeing without being disagreeable. But that is the Flashpoint segment that is on at about 915 in Channel 8's Inside Texas Politics on Sunday mornings. We know what's happened with you, Mark Davis, is that you've been on the air so long and you've had so many different callers call in and argue points. You've really honed down on all these subjects in the book. I'm sure you did a lot of research and organizing of data, but you've honed in on the skill of responding to crazy with really, <laughs> with really logical points. Also, I want to commend you, too, in this book. You don't just talk about the issues like taxes and money and kind of, but you also hit on some of the social issues. I love one thing you said. I've made this point a million times. But I loved it. Opposing same-sex marriage is like opposing mixed-race marriage, and that is the argument the left makes. Yes. Because they're, they're trying to make us look as cruel and mean and petty as those who would oppose same, uh, as those who would oppose biracial marriage. And, and, and you've latched there, Debbie, onto the main thing that has been the, the arena of all the losses that we have endured over the decades is that we don't want to be thought of as cruel. We don't want to be thought of as not nice. So we just shrug and we give up. Uh, when the dominant culture tells us that smaller government is cruel, that opposing same sex marriage makes you a homophobe, that being serious in the war on terror makes you an Islamophobe, I know that's one of your favorites, uh, that, that all that, that, that opposing climate panic means you hate the planet. Climate panic. It's a lot of work, and, and you've got to step forward. It's almost like every hour you've got to say, no, I'm not a miserable SOB. I believe <laughs> these things because, for the following reasons, and I'm just as nice as you are. Yeah, I loved it. So we were going to take turns. Like you had one yes, genuine. Yes. We I have like a minute and a half here about monogamy. How how uh, the liberals want to paint it as it's just something that's going out of style. But you put in some facts, and 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 I just I I enjoyed reading that piece because I so agree with you. Thank you so much. And, and it's, it's important for people to know that it's not just politics and taxes and Obamacare. I've got some stuff in there about faith and human nature. When people say boys and girls are the same and gender differences don't matter. And, you know, and I, I've always loved that kids don't need a parent at home. I always love that one. Uh, people say, but hey, it's not in our nature to be monogamous. <laughs> I, exactly right. Civilized behavior and avoiding sin is all about being uh, scriptural and being coherent in our own lives so that we suppress the dark and terrible parts of our human nature so that we can thrive. So there's a lot of that in there, too. Okay, we only have 20 seconds in this segment, and this guy here keeps turning music on when I'm trying to talk. But when we come back, can you hang on during the break, Mark? I'm ready. You bet. Okay, I want to talk about the Supreme Court because I'm a lawyer by background and I love the, the uh, treatment of the issue and the whole question of the Supreme Court's composition. It's so important for people to understand that and I think they don't. So we'll be right back. We're talking to Mark Davis and this is Debbie Georgiatis and America Can We Talk with Jenny McGarry, my leading lady. Come right back.
welcome back to America Can We Talk. I hate talking over our singer, Krista Branch. Love her music. Her music just captures the theme of the show, uh, America Can We Talk. And we're just all about the idea of embracing America's exceptional identity, knowing how it got exceptional, why it is, and keep it that way. I'm going to take a moment before we return and talk to Mark Davis uh, to thank the sponsor of this show. I want to thank GC Works, which funds America Can We Talk. And they're a, they're a Dallas-based company. They perform research in advanced technology, and they deliver innovative approaches to the oil and gas industry. Appreciate GC Works so very much. Okay, so we're talking with Mark Davis, author of the new and completely readable, uh, enjoyable book, Upside Down. So I want to hit Mark on the Supreme Court. And you had a point uh, in the book, the chapter is called Supreme Court, and your point in the book was the court should be ideologically balanced, that that being the liberal argument about the court. And you know, what it, it's, it seemed, I had the thought about how it's because Congress we think of Congress, we wouldn't want to be all Democrat, all Republican, because they're policymakers, so we like a sense of balance there. And because the court legislates from the bench, we kind of think, well, they should be balanced too. I, it was a brilliant insight for you to talk about the idea that there, that's a completely uh, wrong um, idea about the court. Thank you. And, here, and here's how it goes. I, I don't care whether a justice is conservative or liberal in his own life, her own life, whatever he or she wants to do, but they have to bring fidelity to the Constitution. Uh, the, the case in point would be the pro-choice justice who realizes that Roe versus Wade was wrong, not because anybody's pro-life or how anybody feels about the unborn, but because the, the right to abortion simply is not in the Constitution. Same with gay marriage, same with all kinds of other issues. That someone can bring their own personal politics uh, into, into the judges' chambers all they wish, but it's their job to keep them out of their rulings. Now, it sounds simple, but it leads us to the sad fact that only the conservatives, only the Antonin Scalia example, uh, a, a type of example exists. Because Justice Scalia ruled against all kinds of, uh, of, of legislation that he probably would have personally favored and ruled for all kinds of things that he found abhorrent, like flag burning. So it is only the conservatives who recognize this difference. The liberal justices of today feel compelled to bring their own politics, their own political whims into their rulings, and that's just got to stop. Amen, brother. Okay, I'm going to throw one point response to that, which is, the American left, even people in Washington who are in, are in the Senate or the leaders of the Democrat Party, there are many of them who are lawyers, and they do know what the Constitution intended the Supreme Court to be. They do know the role of the judiciary versus uh, the, you know, the um, executive branch and the, and the judicial branch, and they, they understand the difference. But they're so driven to get their ideology pushed through that they can't stand the idea of a Supreme Court justice— uh, you know, actually doing what you just described, actually doing, they want that court to be another vehicle to force their legislative preferences, their policy preferences through. That's why, the, and Scalia is widely on the, on the American left criticized, oh, he's so conservative, he's mean, and you're right, he, he ruled on a lot of things, contrary to what his personal views would have been, but consistent with, consistent with the Constitution. But this idea, it, it infuriates the left because they, they just can't, Resist the idea of sticking someone on that court who's going to find in a substantive way for, for make their ruling 
to have the outcome be that the liberal side wins. And I wonder if such a person exists. I mean, if you take a look at Ruth Bader Ginsburg, Stephen Breyer, these, these are incredibly uh, smart people who are steeped in constitutional wisdom, one would think. And I believe that what you said a minute ago is true, that they absolutely do know what constitutional federalist states' rights-related government does, what it teaches and what it requires, they simply cannot restrain themselves. And I don't know whether that is more depressing or less depressing than having a justice that just doesn't know better. Absolutely. I, I totally on board with that. And it's just like they, they don't like the idea of a justice actually knowing the law or, or the way the Constitution was written, not just what they want to intend it to be. Um, another issue that, that, that you had also talked about in, in your book was that you made the statement or the liberal left talking point of there is no military strategy that can defeat terrorists. And then you talked about something that I absolutely just loved, success strategy. Yeah, there, there is, in fact, only one strategy that can defeat ISIS, and it involves invoking the only way we have ever won wars in our country, and that is to kill enough of the enemy that they decide to stop fighting you. That is how our country was born when we did that to the British. That is how we won World War One and World War Two. It is why we did not win in Vietnam, and it's why we have not won yet in the, in the war on terror. Just everybody put this in Sharpie some Somewhere, the yes. way to win a war, it's easy to say and hard to do. Kill enough of the enemy that they decide to stop fighting you. Okay, it's too bad you're not here in person, Mark, because Jenny and I are looking at each other and nodding along and cheering you on. We, we couldn't agree more. We've had many guests in the show talking about our strategy against ISIS and, uh, and you know, the kind of the apparent loss of will in America to do what it's going to take to defeat the enemy, but we have to do it. So we're talking with Mark Davis, author of Upside Down. I'm going to take a 10-second plug and thank you for referencing me, Debbie Georgiatis, in your book on page 227, talking about my book, Ladies Can We Talk? That Appreciate that little plug. Thank you so much. Um, and I want to turn and ask you this. This is not just in the book, but since you've just spent all these years honing your ability to, to think through issues and respond and uh, with quick bullet points, do you think Trump's uh, pivot, development, whatever you want to call it, an immigration policy recently, is it going to hurt him in Texas? I don't think so. Uh, a phenomenon has revealed itself in the last few days. Uh, when he did that town hall with Hannity and asked people, it was kind of a rough you know, crowd poll there, which almost never you know, works, but, but it, it kind of got an idea that there were people who were totally willing, if Trump is the guy enacting it, and to find a way to, quote-unquote, work with, work through the heart-rending cases of the, the, the mom and dad who brought their three-year-old here illegally 13 years ago, but now the kid is 16, has a 4.0 at you know, some high school, and it, it, it doesn't even know Spanish, and America's the only country they've ever known. We, yes, we've got to find a way to deal with those. And, and all of a sudden, Texans and people, immigration hardliners like me, are totally willing to do it, too, to entertain that if we really believe someone will do something about the borders. No one believed that about Marco Rubio. No one believed that about Jeb Bush. Most people do believe it about Donald Trump, as do I. So if he'll do that first, we can sit down and talk about anything after that. 
All right. That's actually a very interesting take. I have to say, but on this kick today, we talked with Lieutenant Governor Dan Patrick in the last hour. I want from Donald Trump and from anyone talking about any, whether it's comprehensive immigration reform or whatever it's going to be, I want some guarantee that this legal status you have here where you are permitted to stay and, and work and receive paychecks and pay taxes, I want us to protect the actual definition of citizenship, which carries with it the right to vote. Exactly, which which brings about an interesting uh, 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 suggestion that some have made. Let us give the Democratic Party almost every bit of what they might actually call amnesty, but with one asterisk, no citizenship for 20 years, and see if they take it. I guarantee you they would not, and that would thus reveal exactly what they're going, uh, what, they're, what they're about. Exactly. Mark, uh, yeah, Jenny's nodding too. I couldn't yeah. agree more. I think this issue of voting, I think that the uh, willingness to have a weak, uh, basically an open border in the South, the it, just encouragement also, people entering America illegally, the growing, I, I think the Democrat policies over the years have been intended to have a larger and larger group people within our borders who aren't here legally because Democrats see them as ultimately expansion of the Democrat voting base. Of course they do, and Democrats will tell you with their fingers crossed behind their backs today, oh, we're not going to talk about citizenship. None of this is about citizenship. We just want to bring people out of the shadows. The minute they're out of the shadows, Chuck Schumer will hold a news conference and say, look at these people who are now out of the shadows. It is cruel to deny them the basic right to vote that we all have. <laughs> okay, you stole my line. And he's even the one I would, <laughs> would have pointed to would say that. This is the problem when we have some middling kind of definition that is not full citizenship, but you're out of the shadows, is especially once you're paying taxes, especially once these folks can work, pay taxes, and therefore should be able to receive benefits from that the argument that they can't vote is, is overwhelmingly difficult to make. It's very hard. But I do think what you're saying is also true. It's just saying, you know, maybe make it 50 years, whatever it is. <laughs> once, thing, yeah. you know, once you had that on the table, the Democrat, you'd be forcing their hand because at the end of the day, what they think are these are going to be our voters. Okay, we have like 20, we have a little time left here, Mark. So tell us about your adventures in sharing your book. You've been out and about on the uh, trail all over the country, haven't you? It has been great. Went up to New York, did some Fox News, a little of this, some Hannity, a little of this. And ever since since then, being on about a hundred radio stations, it has given me a lesson as to what people want and what they really care about. They've, nobody's been as thorough as you have, and I thank you for that. I'd say that even if you weren't my friend. But I am finding that people are craving, and not just on conservative talk radio, a kind of a rediscovery of the shared values. We're, we're always going to have left and right, conservatives and liberals. We'll always have that. But but if the, the old arguments used to be how much taxes, which wars to fight. Some things were just not up for debate. They are now. Sometimes we have to rediscover some common ground. This is my attempt to try. I love that. We were talking about, I do think whether, even though Donald Trump wasn't my first choice in the primary, I think his talk about nationalism, uh, taking aside the left's attempt to spin that into some sort of racism, but just the idea of re-embracing America's greatness and goodness, this is why people responded to him. They they liked seeing, hearing someone say, yeah, this is a good country. We're good people. And the idea of our country's great, this is what caught fire with the American public, in my view, on Donald Trump. Just putting America first. Completely right. And if he can stay on that message and avoid the brush fires, we're going to be okay. (laughs) Okay, Mark Davis, thank you so much for calling. It's fun to talk to you as always. Thank you, guys. Nice to see you, Debbie. Thank you, Jenny. Appreciate you guys.
Okay, have a good evening. And that was Mark Davis, whose new book, Upside Down. I can encourage you, actually, if you do any public speaking of any kind, I encourage you to get this book. Because it'll give you talking points on every issue you can think of. And not just, I mean, they're, they're the complex issues, they're the sensitive issues, or just a whole range of them. So we, I, I think it's just a great book and a great gift for American, uh, the American political conversation. Okay, this is Debbie George Jasper, wrapping up America Can We Talk. Follow me on Twitter at Debbie Can We Talk. Check out our new website. AmericaCanWeTalk.org and our Facebook page. We have great conversations. And if you want to email me, it's AmericaCanWeTalk at gmail.com. I get lots of emails from listeners. Feel free. And thanks so much for tuning in. Come back every week. Thank you for listening to America Can We Talk with Debbie Georgiatis. To learn more or to contact Debbie, go to americacanwetalk.org. America Can We Talk, truth about America. You're listening to RNCN, the digital destination for premium talk radio.